You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Today is Wednesday. Uh, I apologize for the technical problems that got me on a little bit late today, but we're still going to have a program, and I think we're going to have a good program today. Uh, We're doing it on Wednesday today because I am about to leave tomorrow at this time, the normal Thursday time when I have this program. I'm going to be in Africa, first in Kenya and then in Uganda. And I'm going to be speaking at a couple conferences, other smaller meetings with pastors and leaders, just pouring into them the best that I can, uh, together with some other really good brothers I've known for a long time, Brent Harrell, uh, will be uh, helping me a lot. Uh, I'll Actually, I'll be helping him in Kenya. And then a good friend of mine, David Grizzani, is going to be there in Uganda. I'll be helping him and a team of other people for another conference. So very pleased to be doing that. Uh, again, I'm going to leave tomorrow. So that's why we're doing this today on Wednesday. And this is the first time that we've tried to run a scheduled live stream from this particular setup here. And, uh, well, it's just going to take us a little bit of time to figure it out. But I know that I'm on now. Uh, Happy that you could join me. Let's get on with it here. And um, today we're going to address our lead question for the day. And the lead question is, um, can women be deacons? And then kind of specifically, was Phoebe a deacon? And this question comes from Tina via email. Here's the question from Tina. Hi, Pastor Guzik. My name is Tina. I have a question regarding women having positions in the church. I was in a discussion with a woman who thinks it's fine for women to be pastors and deacons or any other place of authority over a congregation. I'm in disagreement with that because the Bible says so. The person I was in discussion with brought up Phoebe and how Paul commended her. Some translations say Phoebe was a servant. Others say deacon. Is there a difference between servant and deacon? Is the role of a deacon to be a servant? And is there authority, in quotation marks, in that position? I've never seen a female deacon, nor would I assume because there's possibly one example of a female deacon in the early church, it wouldn't necessarily signify that there should be a standard practice. But I'm not sure how to justify that biblically, even after reading 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, because of Paul commending Phoebe. Thank you for your time and all you do. I love your Enduring Word app, and God bless you, your family, and team. Well, Tina, thank you for your question. Thank you for your kind words about our Enduring Word app. We do have an app on Enduring Word. You're on. You're good. Yeah, thank you. Oh, my wife just popped in. Let me know we're on and we're good out of sight. Hey, anyway, Tina, I just want you to know that uh, we have a marvelous development team. A very wonderful husband and wife have taken over for many months now the management of our Enduring Word app, and it's great. Folks, I recommend to you that you get our Enduring Word app. It's absolutely free, no cost whatsoever. There's not any any buy-in levels or purchases to make later. It's just all absolutely free. It's available on all the normal channels, wherever you get your apps, and it's a great way to access my Bible commentary and the resources that we have. Okay, so let me get to Tina's questions here. First of all, she asked the question, is there a difference between servant and deacon? Well, Tina, yes, there is a difference between a servant and a deacon. Now, it 
is the same basic word in the Greek New Testament. Diakonos, or its various, you know, verb tenses or noun tenses, whatever you would state it, but the basic word is diakonos, but that word is used many times in the Greek New Testament, but only in a few places does it clearly refer to an office. I would say those clear places are Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul says he's writing the letter to the deacons and elders in Philippi. First uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, where he talks about the qualifications for deacons. And then it's the same context in verse 12 in that same chapter. So there's only three clear references of that word diakonos, where it refers to an office in the early church. But there's more than 20 other times when it refers to service or being a servant, but in a general sense. I'll give you just one example of that. Romans chapter 13, verse 4 says that governing authorities are God's servants. It uses that word diakonos or a form of it, but obviously not in the sense of a church office. So servant describes a person who serves. Deacon describes someone who's appointed or recognized in some kind of church office but it's an office that's given to service in the church. Okay, so that's your one question. Is there a difference between servant and deacon? Yes, even though the same Greek word is used, in our context, we understand that there's a difference. One refers to just service in general, a person who serves. The other describes some kind of office in the early church, in the church today as well, we would say. Now, your second question, Tina, is this. Is the role of deacon to be a servant, and is there authority in that position? Well, Tina, I would say this, that there is some authority in the office of a deacon, but not general authority over the church or over the local congregation. I mean, let me just give you an example off the top of my head, how there would be some authority in the role of being a deacon. Uh, let's imagine that somebody is the deacon, the servant of uh, setting up a room for uh, a worship service of a church. Well, I I'm sure that if somebody is in charge of that, and if they're given the role deacon to do that, they're given the title deacon, they're the deacon of church setup, whatever, you know, different churches do things different ways, but just imagine this with me. I'm sure that that deacon doesn't have to run to the elders or the pastor of the church and say, what do you want me to do with this row of the chairs? What do you want me to do with this row of the chairs? Uh, I've got some chairs left over. What do I do with those? L look, obviously, there's some authority given to that particular deacon to make some choices on their own. So there's some authority in the office of deacon, but it is not, and I think, listen carefully here, it is not general authority over the church or over local congregation. That general authority over a church or a local congregation is something that God appointed for qualified men. Now, obviously, deacons have to make some decisions on their own, as I just explained with the kind of silly example of setting up chairs. But if we want to consider the servants who were chosen in Acts chapter 6, whom we normally consider to be deacons, uh, but they're not given that specific title in Acts chapter 6. But if we assume that those are deacons, they would have had to make some decisions on their own, but in no way was it a general authority. So I, I wouldn't say the office of deacon is an office that has no authority, but it's limited, it's focused, it's certainly not 
general authority. In Acts chapter 6, that general authority was with the apostles. Now, Tina, what you're really getting at in your question is a very valid question. Can women be deacons? In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, Paul gave qualifications for deacons. And an example of the work of deacons is found in Acts chapter 6, where they're appointed by the apostles to lead and do important practical work uh, among the believers. That was the fair distribution of food to those uh, needy widows in the church. But in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11, Paul wrote this. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Now, here's kind of the difficulty here with 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11. It's difficult to know if Paul here referred to female deacons or if he was referring to the wives of male deacons. I have to be honest, according to the commentators I read, because I don't want to pass myself off as an expert in the original languages when I am no means by, by no means an expert, I rely on commentators that I trust for these insights in the original languages. According to commentators that I trust on the original Greek wording there, they say that the wording will permit either possibility. It could be talking about the wives of male deacons, or it could be talking about female deacons. Now, if he's speaking mainly of a male deacon's wife, well, then it's appropriate. Because in part, a man's place or qualifications for ministry can be determined by looking at his character's qualifications in his own home. If the wife is reverent, if she's not one of the slanderers, if she's temperate, if she's faithful in all things, um, then that's a plus for his qualifications, in this case, as deacon. So, I would say that the first Timothy chapter three, verse 11 passage is a little unclear. To my estimation, it really could go either way. However, we do have the interesting case here in Romans chapter 16, verses one and two, where we read, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who's a servant of the church in Centria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she's been a helper of many and of myself also. Now here in Romans chapter 16, verses one and two, Paul's clearly commending to the church in Rome, Phoebe, our sister, almost certainly the one who carried the letter to the Romans. And Paul demonstrates he knows the value of her service. She's commend He's commending her. Those kind of recommendations were very important in the early church and today as well, I would say. But the word servant there in verse one, Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Centria, uh, that same word is translated deacon in other places. There's a fairly good case for Phoebe being recognized as a female deacon in the church, perhaps by formal recognition, or perhaps by her general service. As Paul goes on to say, verse two, he gives her this very high compliment. She's been a helper of many and of myself as well. <laughs> that really is one of the best 
compliments you can give a person to say that they were helpful to somebody serving the Lord. Now, in light of that, there's also a mention in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, where Paul mentions two women, Eodia and Syntyche, who apparently were having a lot of arguments and problems, and it was disrupting the church there in Philippi. But he mentions these two women as being fellow workers with Paul and the church in Philippi, without specifically giving them the title of deacon. So I come to it from the perspective of saying that women can be deacons. There is a role, there is a place of deaconesses, and it seems that there were deaconesses or female deacons in the early church, especially to deal with women's needs such as a woman who was sick and needed service and needed very practical assistance. They thought that oftentimes it would be better to have a woman coming alongside her and helping her rather than a man. So it seems that this existed in the early church. There's certainly some indication of it in the New Testament church. But I do also, I have to say, I understand the reasons why someone might say that women aren't deacons in the Bible. First of all, they would say, regarding 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11, they would say, well, look, that's about the wives of deacons, not female deacons themselves, which again, it could be. They would also say that Phoebe, in Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, that she was just a general servant, that she didn't have the office of deacon. Maybe so. And then they would also say that when they chose the seven to true to serve in the book of Acts, chapter six, which again, we, we all kind of call those people deacons. They're never given the title of that in Acts chapter six. It is noted that they were all men and that they were actually doing ministry for women, that is the needy widows. But b- biblically speaking, I, I do think that it is possible that women can be deacons um, because I don't see any place in the New Testament where it indicates that the role of deacons in the church includes any kind of teaching authority or general authority over a congregation. It's a office and a gifting that's very practical in its orientation. Now, look, that doesn't mean that the gift or the office of being deacon was not valued. It certainly doesn't mean that it wasn't spiritual. Listen, friends, Practical service is very spiritual. It just doesn't necessarily imply an authority over the congregation in general. And it certainly doesn't imply teaching authority. But look, the requirements for deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3 shows that it was an office that required spiritual maturity and character, but it was not an office of authority or fundamental leadership. Deacons had some authority in kind of their limited sphere of ministry, but they certainly didn't have general authority, not in the church. Now, here's what complicates it a little bit further. In some churches today, the role of deacon describes those who lead the church. This is often true in some kind of traditionally Baptist churches. Uh, The deacons are the board, the committee, the group that has the most leadership authority and influence. Now, I don't think that that matches the biblical description of what a deacon is, but it is what it is. In those cases, I would say, no, 
God hasn't ordained that that kind of authority and leadership over a general congregation should be given to women in the church. It should be given to qualified men, not any man, but qualified men, according to the qualifications stated in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus chapter 1. I will say something else about this as well. If 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 11 applies only to the wives of deacons, it's interesting that there's no mention of the character qualifications for the wives of elders. Now, clearly, uh, the office of elder was an office with more authority in the New Testament church than the office of deacon. As I said, whatever authority deacons had was very narrow, very limited. It wasn't over the congregation in general, as opposed to the office of elder. And it gives to me evidence why 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11 is speaking to female deacons. Because if Paul thought it was important to have specific qualifications for the wives of deacons, then it would seem almost certainly that it would also include specific qualifications uh, requirements for the wives of elders, but he doesn't. So to me, that's evidence for it being uh, something having to do with female deacons. But note this, please. If 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11 applies to women or female deacons, which I think it does, I, I don't think it's totally clear-cut, but I think the evidence is more in that direction, then it is absolutely striking that God gave no similar instruction for women elders. Do, do you get what I'm saying here? If when addressing deacons, Paul says, okay, here's qualification for the men deacons, here's qualification for the women deacons, but then in addressing elders in both 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, Paul makes zero mention of women elders in any way, then friends, that's very indicative that Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, did not intend women to be in places of general leadership over the church, as I think is the biblical pattern. Friends, look, I know this is a controversial thing. There may be very well people listening to me right now at this moment, and you would very strongly disagree with me. You would say, listen, I don't think, David, that there's any problem with women being pastors, women being elders, women being any kind of leadership in the church. And I understand you you, you have a whole group of people in God's family today that agree with you. I just want you to know, I think that's not correct. And I think that uh, I would recommend to you a couple of videos that I have on my YouTube channel Number one, take a look at the video that I have teaching through this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where it talks about the role of women. That's number one, qualifications of um, elders. Number two, uh, I have a video on the YouTube channel of a message that I give to women pastors. Look, I have a commentary on the whole Bible, and I know that there's women pastors who use my material, who use my commentary. You might say, well, David, how do you do? Well, first of all, I, how can I prohibit people from using things that are absolutely out there free on the internet? But what would I say to a woman who says, hey, I'm a pastor, God's called me. What would I say to such a person? Well, take a look at that video. It's on our YouTube channel. Let me make one last point before we go to the questions that come in. And sorry for running a little bit late today. We had a little bit of a rocky start, but here we are. It's easy to get hung up on titles in the church. Now, there's nothing wrong, of course, 
with a church recognizing pastors, elders, or deacons. But to take the case of deacons, if someone's attitude is, well, I'm not going to serve God's people until they give me the title or the office of deacon, then friends, something is clearly wrong. The important thing is doing the work that God gives us to do and doing it as it would please him and not being so hung up on titles or offices. Now, I'm not trying to say that titles and offices have no place. Obviously, they do. But they are easily overemphasized. And I would say that that's true of both, among both men and women. So, Tina, thank you again for your question. I hope I've answered it for you well enough. And let's go on now to the questions in the live chat here. Let me go to this. First of all, a question from um, Brittany asks... I've heard about Junia, Romans chapter 16, verse 7, being an apostle. Is this true? Uh, Brittany, I I would put it to you in these two ways. Uh, Possibly, Paul referred to Junia as an apostle in a broad sense. Please remember that the the term apostle is used in a couple different senses in the New Testament. It's used in the sense of a, uh, a authoritative messenger. A messenger who's deliberately sent. And it's possible that uh, Junia, together with her husband, because she's mentioned there in connection with her husband, uh, Junia there had a was a special ambassador of God's work in some way. That's really the idea of an apostle, an ambassador. Now, that's possible, but I do think that it's more likely in Romans chapter 16, verse 7. That where it says that she is of note among the apostles, that it's not that she is among the apostles, but that the apostles noted her good and diligent service. Um, people who favor uh, women pastors, ordination of women, no uh, difference between the role of m- women and qualified men in leading the church, they're very quick to just assume that it means that Junia was, first of all, that Junia was a woman. Uh, there's some controversy on that. The probably evidence is probably more on the side that she's a woman instead of a man, because apparently uh, that was a name that could be applied either way, but it's probably more likely that she was a woman, uh, that Junia was a woman rather than being a man. But it's automatically assumed that Junia was a woman. And number two, it's automatically assumed that when it says that she was of note among the apostles, that she was among the apostles, where I think it's more likely that the apostles collectively recognized her as a remarkable servant of the Lord. You know, Brittany, I I get frustrated with the discussion sometimes, going by the title sometimes complementarianism and egalitarianism. uh, It basically revolves around Uh, What has God decreed in his word? What has God commanded in his word about the role of women in the church? And one of the things that um, frustrates me about that discussion oftentimes is I think that those who argue from an egalitarian perspective, the perspective that says that there is no restriction, that women can be pastors, bishops, elders, apostles, whatever, um, is that they like to phrase it as if we would say, well, if you don't agree that women should be in leadership over 
uh, a congregation in general, then you don't think women can serve God at all. You don't think that there's any place for them to use their gifts. And it's so wearying. It, It seems to me to be such an argument in bad faith. Obviously, God uses women in remarkable ways. Obviously, God is gifted and ordained. Obviously, women and men together are partners in building the kingdom. But I I would say that it's just as obvious in the scriptures that God has ordained the leadership of husbands in the home and God has ordained the leadership of qualified men, qualified and called men in the church. It's really that simple. But is that to say that God doesn't use or can't use women? Of course not. So Junia was obviously a woman used. Um, number one, I think it's more likely, much more likely, that she was of note among the apostles noted her faithful service. But even if she was an apostle, she's an apostle just in a general sense of being a general ambassador, a, a special ambassador of God's work, and not being a authoritative apostle over churches or congregations or anything like that. That's how I would approach that, Brittany. Thank you for that question. Next question comes from Adonis who asks, how would you respond to a Judaist who says that Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Isaiah 7, 14, and Micah 5, 2 were completely fulfilled by Hezekiah, uh, Maher Hashabaz, and David respectively? Well, look, I I would just say that you have to do considerable bending of those passages in order to come to that place. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Listen, uh, Hezekiah was in many ways, not in every way, a great king. I don't know anybody calling him Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Uh, the sign of Emmanuel, God with us. Again, I, I, I would just say that this is a deliberate taking of these passages and restricting, uh, cutting down their meaning as low as possible to sort of deny their obvious fulfillment in Jesus Christ. I would say that that is um, obvious there in each one of those contexts, each having to do with Isaiah, uh, excuse me, Hezekiah, uh, Masher Hasbaz, and David, respectively. Um Again, what's interesting about this ruler described in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, is Micah was obviously written far after the time of David, yet it says that there will come a ruler from David. And God made specific promises to David that from his lineage would come the Messiah. So that that Micah 5, 2 passage, applying that to David, just seems very wrong-headed It goes against the chronology. It also goes against the specific promises that God made to David. So I hope that's helpful for you there, Adonis. Um, Next question goes to, um, let's see, Dan, who asks, could you see a liberal reader of the Bible use female pastors in slavery as trying to show how the church has evolved and should evolve to allow the LGBTQ community into leadership. Well, Dan, yes. And this is exactly an argument that they use. They use an argument like this. The church 
was wrong about slavery. Therefore, the church is wrong about uh, the role of women in the church, a more traditional uh, understanding of the role of women in the church. And the church is wrong about uh, homosexuality and trans identities being sinful and out of God's will. It's just like, just as the church changes position on slavery, so the church must change their position on these things. Well, I would just disagree with that in every, uh, in every aspect. Look, um, there were many who got slavery wrong in the church, but certainly not everyone. But just because the church got something wrong or some in the church got something wrong in past generations doesn't mean that the cause of the day in the culture today is automatically biblically justified. Good heavens, people. What have we come to? Have we come to the place where we look to the world and we say, hey, the world says the most important thing is that the culture be homosexual applauding. It isn't just tolerant today. It has to be applauding, cheering on a, a pro-homosexuality movement within the broader culture. Th that the church's job is to look at whatever the world is doing with that and to follow along with it. And then the same is happening with the whole trans identity sort of thing. So friends, th this is extremely concerning within the church. Look, I'll I boil it down in, in simple ways. <clears throat> the Bible says very plainly that it's an abomination for a man to lie with another man as he would lie with a woman. The Bible says it's an abomination. The culture around us wants us to say it's awesome. You, you got two choices. Is it an abomination or is it awesome? Now, l listen, you know, you could go into the thousand caveats that you're supposed to bring up at a time like this. And I'm not interested in those thousand caveats because, of course, we're supposed to love people. Of course, we're supposed to go alongside with them. Of course, God's love is extended to the sinner. On and on and on. But listen, forget about all that just for a moment and just say, is the practice of homosexuality, is it an abomination or is it awesome? The Bible says very clearly in Leviticus that for a man to lie with another man as he would lie with a woman is an abomination. The culture wants us to applaud it and say it's awesome. So it's just something for Christians that they must be so clear on because it's just simply biblical truth. And again, uh, I could go more into the slavery question, but that continuum is exactly what drives many people to progressive Christianity. And it, there, is, there are no breaks on that. Whatever the culture applauds, the church is commanded to applaud. So, uh, Dan, I think you're very perceptive there. And uh, thank you for that question. Let me go on to the next question from Kinsey. How should a Christian go about warning others of blatantly false prophets who are simultaneously bringing in false doctrine? Should we address their specifically unbiblical claims? Should we ignore them? Uh, if so, what does that process of addressing it look like biblically? Okay, Kinsey, it, 
it's a difficult question to ask. And let me say, it's difficult, not in principle. In principle, Christians should stand for the truth. In principle, Christians should stay very close to their Bible and, and stand on biblical truth and teach the truth and expose the unfruitful works of darkness and the lies. That, that's the principle. But Kenzie, here's where it gets complicated is, uh, in what arena, in what platform? Okay, I, I'll give you an example. Now, I am no longer a pastor over a congregation, uh, but when I was, and I had served as a pastor for many, many years, decades, there would be people who would come to me and want me to speak out loudly and extensively on issues that might be out there somewhere in the Christian world, but to my perception, and I think my accurate perception, had no impact on our Christian, uh, on our church community at all. It was just a non-issue. But they wanted me to make it an issue for our congregation. And I would just disagree. I'd say, listen, I think you're right. This particular teaching, let, let's just say, um, I don't know, I'll just throw something out, the um, uh, prosperity gospel. Look, a good pastor, and I hope that I was a good pastor, maybe not a great pastor, I hope I was a good pastor. A, a good pastor has his finger on the pulse of the congregation. He knows from his interaction with the people in the church what they're thinking, what they're going through, what things are coming at them. And just because something is out there doesn't mean that it's relevant to a particular congregation. And I think there's some trust that needs to be given to the pastors and elders of a congregation to figure that out. So just because something is false doesn't mean that addressing it is relevant to a particular group of people or a particular thing. Now, if that is an issue among a congregation, then pastors, elders, leaders, they do have a responsibility to speak out. They do have a responsibility to instruct, to guide, to help the congregation along those ways. Um, so really, Kinsey, you, in principle, yes, absolutely, but how it practically comes down to individuals and what they're going through, that is something that needs to be understood from just a, 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 a thing of where things are at. Now, somebody comes to me and a person that I know, a person that I love, if they're, you know, trailing off into, again, I use this as an example, but I'll use it again, the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, uh, then I'll, I'll want to lovingly speak to them and correct them about it. I'll instruct them from the scriptures. But it's not that I have to, um, uh, it's not that I have to talk about it necessarily if it's not an issue with them. So really, that's that's the perspective I would go at it. Um when you do have the chance to warn, then I would just say do it fairly, do it lovingly, and do it from the scriptures. That's basically what I would say. Okay, let me go on to the next question from Luke. Hey, David, love your commentaries. Thank you for that, Luke. Would you consider doing commentaries on the Apocrypha? Also, do you have a favorite book in the Apocrypha? Okay, Luke, here's kind of the, the issue with this. Um, just so happens I had these books aside. When you say the Apocrypha, it's what do you mean by the Apocrypha? Okay, here's an old paperback edition I have of the Apocrypha. And this is what most people mean by the Apocrypha. Uh, it's including the book 
of Esdras, the second book of Esdras, uh, book of Tobit, book of Judith, uh, annotations or additions to the book of Esther, wisdom of Solomon, uh, book of Baruch, uh, first and second Maccabees. So that, okay. These are sometimes called the intertestamental books. These are the books that are in uh, Catholic Bibles and some Protestant Bibles, not many, um, but are never quoted by Jesus or the New Testament. And, and really, I think when you do a historical study, they, they deservedly do not belong in the collection of the Old Testament. So many people mean this by the Apocrypha, but sometimes people mean by the Apocrypha something like this, the book of Enoch. Well, that's an apocryphal book, but it's not included in the normal collection of the Apocrypha. But well, what about this? And then sometimes people mean this, and this is a little harder for you to see. This is an old, I think, 1856 edition I have of the apocryphal New Testament. So this has, you know, the epistle of Barnabas, um, uh, the Smyrnians, uh, the visions of so-and-so, you know, on and on. So when you talk about apocrypha, most people mean this collection, but sometimes people talk about it in other collections as well. Well, your specific question there had to do with this. Um, I don't think I would consider doing commentaries in the Apocrypha, and I'll tell you why. is because there is enough just in the canonical books of the Hebrew and Greek scriptures to keep me busy. I, I, I look at my commentary now, and there's some books of the Bible that I really need to go through again. I think I could improve my content and do that. And I think I'm basically going to be doing that until the day I die. And then you say, do I have a favorite book in the Apocrypha? Well, if I did, it would probably be first and second Maccabees. Those are historical books and pretty reliable historically. I think they have value historically, even though I would not consider them to be on par with sacred scripture. Thanks for that question there, Luke. Next question comes from Adonis. How would you respond to a Judas who says that Paul succeeded with proselytizing Gentiles more than Matthew did with Jews because the Jews knew the Tanakh well enough to know that Christianity was false? Or says that Israelites are less likely to be deceived by Christianity when they grow up learning Hebrew and Judaism with no dependence on translations of Hebrew? Well, Adonis, I would respectfully disagree with that person. I would disagree with them on a couple grounds. First of all, it is true that there are special obstacles to Jewish people coming to faith. Absolutely there are. And I'll give you some of those special obstacles. Number one is that I don't think it was entirely clear in the Old Testament. Now, in light of the New Testament, you read it back and you say that. But before the New Testament came, it was not entirely clear in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be God. And for many Jewish people, that's a big stumbling point. It was not, oh boy, I have a little trouble with this because I think it is very clear in the Old Testament, but especially, there are also many Jewish people who don't perceive, if you will, the dual roles of the Messiah, both as the suffering servant and as the triumphant ruler. Look, there's some Jewish people who say, I'll tell you why Jesus wasn't the Messiah, because he didn't institute a kingdom that has no end and make everything awesome after that. We say, well, no, because he came the first time to suffer and to offer sacrifice 
and then to uh, make a foothold of the kingdom and eventually to fulfill it. But again, there are some Jews who don't just see it that way. Another huge obstacle to Jewish people seeing the truth of the gospel is plainly um, the fact that they perceive that for them to trust in Jesus as their Messiah, we might say to become a Christian, is to forsake their Judaism. And listen, the Jewish people rightly have a concern about forsaking Judaism because of their history. Because of the many attempts to wipe out the Jewish people. Now, we as Christians would say, no, 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 no. You're not forsaking your Judaism. You're fulfilling it. And I understand how that makes sense from our perspective. But from many Jewish perspectives, that doesn't make sense at all. But then the other thing I would say, uh, which is often a huge stumbling block for Jewish people, is the history of Christian persecution against the Jews. Friends, we can't sugarcoat this, that for many centuries, the worst enemies the Jewish people had were Christians, especially the medieval church persecuted Jewish people mercilessly. Many Christians aren't aware of that today, but there are very few Jews who are unaware of that. And I I think that two things are true that many Christians are unaware of the past persecution and animosity that Christians had towards Jews. But many present-day Jewish people are blind or unaware of the incredible goodwill and love that Christians have towards the Jewish people today. So I, I think that these Adonis are much more accurate and realistic obstacles Uh, I don't think it's done just from a sober examination of the scriptures, but it's much more from these cultural and, if I could use the term, sociological sort of things over the centuries. Next question comes from Tunnel Banan Shugo Tre, our friend from Sweden. Uh, Will God throw anyone who wants to go to heaven into hell? Okay, Tunnel Banan Shugo Tre, I would say just simply this. Um, it depends what you mean by once. I I believe that a person really desires heaven. Now, I mean God's heaven. Not the heaven of some people's imagination. Not the heaven of, you know, clouds and people with wings and harps, you know. But the real heaven where God dwells, Jesus said, the one who seeks will find. If a person really wants God's heaven, not the heaven of imagination, but God's heaven, then God will will lead them there. However, there's a lot of people either who don't want God's heaven or they don't want heaven at all. They want to remove themselves from God. They don't want to draw near to him. They want to keep as much distance as possible. Remember what Adam and Eve did in the garden first thing after the fall was they hid from God. Friends, I think this is very significant. This hiding from God. So uh, I think that's terrible. I think it's indicative of the fallen human nature. How those in heaven, excuse me, those in hell, they don't want God's heaven. But I believe that if someone truly does 
God will find a way for them to get there. Um, Dan has a question. By the way, I just see, apparently Tom has given a donation. Well, God bless you, Tom. I wasn't aware we're accepting those on the uh, chat, but God bless you. Thank you for that, Tom. Um, A question here from Dan. Do you have any thoughts on the Methodist disaffiliations? I read yesterday that one of their clergy are that are marrying and blessing gay marriages. Society seems to be moving slowly in the direction of making the Bible teaching hate speech, but that won't stop us from teaching truthfully. Thank you for all you do. Dan, yes, um, I think it's really sad. I think it's tragic that there are several denominations, one of them being uh, the Methodists. Now, there's several Methodist denominations, so... Uh, you know, I'd, I'd have to specify exactly which one, but one of the general Methodist denominations uh, are proving themselves to be quite unfaithful to biblical teaching in many aspects. Part of that, of course, has to do with sexuality. It's tragic, and I think it's really good for faithful Methodist pastors and congregations to disassociate themselves from denominations that are going apostate. Friends, the Church of England is of tremendous concern. Uh, Recently at a synod, I believe that's what they called it, a synod, the Church of England gave full-on approval for their priests to bless same-sex marriages. They didn't command that it be done, but they gave full permission. They approved of it. I think that faithful believers um, have to strongly consider disassociating with the Church of England. The the only reason I would say otherwise is if they um, have a realistic ability, and they may very well, of changing the culture within the Methodist, actually within the Church of England. So I I think that um, there is definitely a point where withdrawing from such denominations is completely merited. Uh, Again, apparently I just see it on the screen. I'm really not paying much, but it comes up very big on my screen. Thank you, Melissa, for your donation. As I said before, I didn't know we're accepting such things, but thank you for that, Melissa. Okay, next question comes from Lynn. 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, and Ephesians 5 speak of sins and not entering the kingdom. Can you help me understand if this means that Christians living in these sinful lifestyles are going to hell? Or is it about rewards in heaven? Well, Lynn, um, I think that those passages that you're quoting from 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, Ephesians 5, that speaks about not going to heaven. But really what it's connected to is the biblical idea that a saved soul is going to reflect a changed life. Uh, To put it in the negative, Charles Spurgeon once said, the grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. I would agree with that. Understanding that, number one, the changes are not all immediate. (laughs) Listen, nobody, as soon as they become genuinely Christian, uh, genuinely commit themselves, they repent and believe and commit themselves to being disciples of Jesus Christ. Nobody has their life instantly changed in every aspect. Absolutely true. The changes are not all at once, and the changes are not complete until our resurrection. 
That's when our salvation is completed and fulfilled. But until then, um, there's a daily growth in grace. So here's the question. Is it, let's just deal with sexual immorality. Is it possible for a genuine believer to commit an act of sexual immorality? Yes, it's possible. And they should feel convicted. They should repent. They should confess it. And they should move on with their Christian life. But it is also possible for a life to be so dominated by sin that it's evidence that they don't believe at all. And I would say this is especially true when a person has surrendered to a sin and no longer battles against it. The the professions of faith that concern me the most are the professions of faith that openly accommodate sin. Look, uh, I claim to be a believer, but I openly and happily practice this thing that the Bible calls sexual immorality, but it's okay because God says it's okay for me. Listen, I worry about that person's soul. And uh, Lynn, you and I both know that we can't read hearts. We don't know exactly where that transition is from darkness to light, but we do know these general principles. So again, I hope that's helpful for you. Next question from Michael asks, uh, I've been a Christian for over 40 years. I often feel like I'm not hearing from God or being led by him. Is this normal? Are we just supposed to read the Bible, pray, and go about everyday life? Michael, God bless you for your Christian. God bless Brandy for a contribution. Again, I'm kind of surprised by this. I didn't even know we were accepting such things. Thank you, Brandy, for your kindness. But Michael asks an excellent question. I'm going to read it again because it's such a good question. I've been a Christian for over 40 years, and I often feel like I'm not hearing from God or being led by him. Is this normal? Michael, yes. Michael, look. God has created us with all different kinds of personalities. Um, all different kinds of personalities. And there are some people who just by their nature, just by their personality, are more sensitive to spiritual things. I have a great place in my heart for people who aren't very spiritual, so to speak. I'm using that with quotations very definitely there. Who aren't very spiritual, but yet they do love Jesus and they do do their best to follow Jesus Christ and to be disciples. They don't ride from one spiritual high to another. They're like, oh, the Lord spoke to me today in the most wonderful way. It was like rapture. It was just so beautiful. No. All they do is exactly what you spoke about here, Michael. They read their Bible, they pray, and they go about everyday life. Michael, may I say, that is admirable before the Lord. And Michael, to be honest, that's how most of us live our Christian life. We just put one foot in front of the other and we go on in our daily walk with the Lord. Okay, folks, we've run o'clock, the one o'clock hour. Um, I'm going to cut it off there. We've taken note of your questions that didn't get answered. We're going to file them away. Hopefully, we'll get to them later, maybe in a lead question. But I do request your prayers. Next week, uh, hopefully, 
I'm going to do the Q&A from Kenya. Now, if we don't have an internet connection that'll allow that, then I'm going to have somebody fill in for me. But hopefully next Thursday, not Wednesday, we're going to be doing the live Q&A from Kenya. And the week after that, hopefully, we'll be doing it from Uganda. This just matters if we have a good enough internet connection. So I hope it works out great. And I hope that you can join me next week. I do appreciate your prayers for this trip that we're going to do. And um, whatever technical problems we had here at the very beginning, uh, your prayers are appreciated. Look, It is what it is. I'm not overly discouraged by it, but we'll just work through it and see if we can work some things out. So um, thank you for joining us today. And I do want to say one final thing. Thank you for praying for my mother-in-law, Gunnar. Last week, I asked you to pray for her and she had a wonderful recovery, came from the hospital very soon. I have no doubt that it was because many in our Enduring Word family were praying Thank you for your prayers for my mother-in-law, Gunnar, who uh, actually had to go into the hospital last uh, Thursday. But I asked you to pray, and you prayed, and God answered wonderfully. Gunnar, I don't know if you're viewing, but if you are, God bless you. I'm so glad that you could join me today. Uh, Anyway, thanks to all of you who could join us, and hope to see you next Thursday. We're going to have a program next Thursday at noon. I do hope that I'm able to do it live from Kenya If not, I'll have somebody filling in for me. Let's see how it works. God bless you, and thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.